Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Michael Anlauer is buying the senators. Robert Badgerow is using the faint hope clause. Donald Trump pleads not guilty again. Workers in Hamilton not seeing big income gains. How much did that super skinny house sell for? And a new Beatles track is coming out featuring John Lennon's voice. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The owner of the Hamilton slash Brantford Bulldogs has reached a deal to buy the Ottawa Senators. And so now there are are a number of questions we're asking ourselves, including what if any impact is this going to have on the Bulldogs as they get set to play in Brantford, and, and what happens here in the city of Hamilton with minor hockey? Scott Radley is the host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear it weeknights 6 to 8 here on 900 CHML and also a columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. Scott, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Headline in the spec today. Pretty sure Michael Anlauer's got the city's full attention now. And, you know, I read it and it was a fantastic write-up by you. Just think of where this city would be. If council bought into Ann Lauer's vision for hockey in Hamilton, we can only, well, we can only envision what that might look like. Well, look, the point is not, and I make it clear there, I'm not suggesting that somehow if council had been a little more on board with him and treated him with a little more interest, that somehow the senators would be on their way down the road to Hamilton. That's not it at all. The senators are not moving. Uh, this is what I wrote about is nothing about an NHL play for Hamilton. That ship has sailed. But you now, probably to a lot of people in this city five years ago, six years ago, you now have a guy who has shown real commitment to this city, who is now the boss of hockey in the nation's capital, who will, as one of the most elite clubs in the country, as owner of a Canadian NHL team, uh, he's going to be rubbing shoulders with politicians and senior bureaucrats and corporate leaders and isn't this the kind of guy, forget hockey for a second, isn't this the kind of guy that you want in your corner that you've shown real commitment to so that when you call up, because these are people that make decisions that affect our city, that when a politician calls up and goes, Michael, you know what, we got this thing, do you mind just sort of going to bat for us? Do you mind just making a phone call and telling this person that you're on board with us? You would want that person on your side. The problem is, for most of the time he's been here, city council and other civic leaders have kind of poo-pooed Michael Andlauer. And you can go through a litany of examples of times when he has been dismissed or there's been things that have been um, disrespected towards him. It's, it's a real, you just wonder if right at this moment, a bunch of people in the city are going, oh man, did we did we just kind of miss the boat here and had a glorious opportunity that may not be quite as glorious right now? What impact is this going to have on the Bulldogs, either here or in Brantford coming up over the next three years? I think we're going to have to wait and see on that. Uh, okay, so the, the first thing is I don't believe that he's going to sell the Bulldogs or anything like that. I, I don't believe that there's any um, immediate reaction like that the 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 question i guess is going to be how fully immersive is owning the ottawa senators and i don't think he's going to know that yet because he's never owned an nhl team and so you know he has been a very um involved owner of the hamilton bulldogs over the years he's had a lot of games he does a lot of stuff that's obviously going to be changing 
And so I was talking on my show last night, a, a theory, and it's only a theory. I'm not basing it on anything I necessarily know, but I think if he discovers that the senators is running the senators is almost all encompassing, takes so much of his time that he doesn't have a ton of time for the Bulldogs. He's going to want that team to be playing in the city where it takes the least amount of dealing with problems and putting out fires. And I got to tell you so far, and we don't know, they haven't even played a game there yet, but so far the way that Brantford has gone about wooing him and I mean, they say they were going to get an arena built, and it's halfway built, Rick. The, the, the additions to the Brantford Civic Center are halfway done already. Um, if you're him and you've got a lot of stuff going on with the Senators, do you not want to just if, – if, if they sell out, if it's a great market, and if he doesn't have to do anything because the city just falls over itself to do whatever to keep that team happy, and if they follow through on what they're talking about in building a new OHL-size arena – that's going to be suddenly pretty enticing, I would think, rather than coming back to a city where he's had to fight with council and deal with things that are, you know, not as fluid, not not as not as easy here. So we, we will see, but it's he won't be selling it, I don't believe, but we'll see where all this stuff falls and where it ends up. Yeah, that path of least resistance would be very enticing for an individual yes. who's, you know, looking yes. after an NHL team and doesn't want to, you know, mess it up because they have some big plans in Ottawa too. New arena, yeah. obviously a team that's up and coming. But one thing I was thinking about was, you know, Ann Lauer's bid beat out other high profile entries from the likes of Ryan Reynolds, The Weeknd, Snoop Dogg. Uh, you know, proposals that gained a lot of traction in the media because of, well, the individuals involved. What does that say about Ann Lauer's offer and his bid to buy the sins? Well, I don't believe that if you, we don't know what was in those bids, but I think if you looked at the weekend and Ryan Reynolds and Snoop Dogg, I bet you that the offer, the, their, their um, actual money they were putting in for all those guys was a very, very small amount, relatively speaking. Like they were, their value was their name and their fame. Uh, Michael Ann Lauer's value was that he was bringing real cash that the NHL already knows him because he's been a part owner of the Canadians and an alternate governor with the Montreal Canadiens for years. He's a known quantity. And I think the biggest thing, and I was talking to an Ottawa columnist who called me yesterday to ask about him. And I said, you know, the biggest thing you've got going for you here, Michael Ann Lauer, I'm sure I know that there is a real estate place building a new arena and, you know, there might be other developments that he'll want to make as a result of this. But this is a guy we've seen in here, Rick. This is a guy who he is first and foremost a hockey owner. He wants that he is going to want the senators to win. I mean, this is not just a guy who's going to be an absentee landlord who couldn't care less as long as the tills are full. He is going to want that team to win. And that's, you know, that's not, yeah, we, see, we saw that last night with the Stanley Cup finals with Bill Foley. He was pretty excited, the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights. But that's not every owner that cares that passionately. A lot of owners, I hate to say, maybe ones who wear blue and white just a few kilometers from here, you know, care maybe more about the bottom line than about whether or not a Stanley Cup is hoisted at the end of the day. I can tell you that I, if, I, I know Michael Anlauer doesn't want to go broke doing this, but he absolutely wants to win. That's, boy, that's, that's exciting for Senators fans that they have someone who's that committed to the product. Absolutely. Scott, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time uh, this morning, and we'll be listening tonight and reading you in the spec. Thanks, Rick. Scott Radley, the host of The Scott Radley Show, weeknights 6 to 8, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, chiming in on Michael Ann Lauer's 
uh, bid by the sins. And uh, the Board of Governors will uh, go through all the uh, line-by-line items in that proposal. And the deal in principle, I am sure, will be approved uh, later on this year. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I, I don't believe I'm saying this individual's name again, but it's Robert Badgerow. Yeah, the convicted murderer, the convicted rapist who killed Diane Rowendowitz back in 1981. Well, as you know, he's in jail. He's in prison. He's applied for early parole, however. And he's done so using the faint hope clause. And here to talk about it is Susan Claremont, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Susan, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Headline in the spec today, murderer and rapist Robert Badgerow's hope for early parole may not be faint. How many lives does this guy have? Yeah, this is the story that never ends. Uh, I've, I've been covering it since uh, 1998. <laughs> and just when I thought it was over, uh, he applies for a faint hope hearing. So how does that work? How is he eligible to use this faint hope clause? Yeah, the faint hope clause doesn't actually even exist anymore. Um, It was uh, taken off the books some time ago. Uh, But because uh, his crime is so old, it still applies retroactively to him. So he is one of a very few offenders left in the system who can actually apply for this. Um, And it means that he has a shot at uh, going in front of the parole board and asking to be released earlier than he is supposed to be. A jury is going to hear this case, I believe in your article, says January. What is the process? How does this work? Yeah, so three weeks have been set aside in January. There will be a a jury selected, um, but their focus will be a lot different from a jury at, say, one of his four murder trials. Um, And the murder trials, the jury's job was to decide whether he was guilty or not guilty. Uh, Now they assume that he is guilty. They accept his guilty verdict. But now they're looking at things like, his behavior while he's been in prison? Has he been a a model uh, prisoner? Has he taken any courses to uh, try to improve himself? Um, They'll they'll look at um, the facts of the case. They'll consider the the family of Diane Rowenduitz and how they would be affected by him having a chance at early early parole. Uh, And I would think that it would also have to consider, you know, um, the justice system itself and whether this would be um, accepted by the public or not. This would also, in in my mind, you know, re-victimize the victim's family. I mean, they're going through this all over again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are a few members of the Rowanduit's family left alive, Sadly, her her parents are deceased. Um, but you know, she uh, those who who remember her and who love her have um, come out to support her at trials. Have um, had to undergo all the media attention every time his name comes up in the news yet again. Um, you know, and don't forget that he's taken this case more than once to the Supreme Court of Canada. So they they have been through 
hell uh, for since 1981, and they're about to have to reopen all those wounds uh, once again. Susan Claremonti is a columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You can read her latest column about Robert Badgerow and his application for faint hope clause and, and early parole. And the question is, what's the likelihood he gets early parole? I think he has a shot at it. Um, if if people remember, he spent months, even years, sometimes out on on bail between his trials, and um, by all accounts, he was he he kept the peace. He was well behaved. He didn't commit any offenses. Um, so he has a, a proven track record of being able to live in the community without any problems. Uh, so I I fear that that will bode well for him and may convince a jury that he is uh, eligible for early release. We have this story. We have Paul Bernardo being transferred to a medium security facility, the Millard Smitch uh, parole eligibility being lessened. Our, our justice system is going the wrong way here. Well, it, it certainly uh, is upsetting to the public. It's certainly um, horrible for the families of the victims. Um, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to know what's going on because one of the, the greatest problems is a lack of transparency in the system. And that's what we've been seeing with the Paul Bernardo case. We don't even have explanations or answers about what is really happening there. So it makes it difficult to understand the system and understand the rationale for some of these decisions that are being made. Susan, great job covering uh, this case for, uh, well, as you mentioned, for decades now. It's hard to believe. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Susan Claremont is a columnist with The Hamilton Spectator. You can read her latest column uh, online at spec.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Former U.S. President Donald Trump pleading not guilty yesterday to 37 federal charges related to his alleged mishandling of top-secret documents after he left the White House. It's alleged that he hoarded these classified documents, which detailed sensitive military secrets, and and then allegedly tried to thwart government efforts to get these documents back. So yesterday he's in court in New Jersey, and then afterwards last night held a rally with supporters where he maintained that the charges he's facing are fake and politically motivated. This day will go down in infamy and Joe Biden will forever be remembered as not only the most corrupt president in the history of our country, but perhaps even more importantly, the president who together with a band of his closest thugs, misfits and Marxists tried to destroy American democracy. John Wagner is a politics reporter with The Washington Post and joins us now on GMH. John, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. Doing well. What was your reaction to yesterday's court proceeding? Well, it, it, I think it went largely as expected in some ways. Uh, sad to say, I guess we, we've you know seen this, this movie before. It was just uh, <laughs> several weeks ago that uh, Trump was up in uh, Manhattan on state level charges there uh, regarding hush money payments. Um, so, you know, I think this played out largely as ex- expected. It wasn't televised. So, you know, only the reporters in the, the courtroom actually saw what transpired. But uh, there was, a, you know, a scene around the courtroom in Miami and 
but n- nothing got out of control. So, so that that was certainly good. In his speech last night, we just played a clip of it. Supporters really seem as passionate, maybe more so than ever, in their defense of the former president. What impact do you think this is going to have on the Republican ticket and the 2024 presidential run? Should he get that far? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there is certainly a lot of passion on the Republican side about uh, what you know what they are alleging is a, a double standard in prosecution. Um, there have been some high-profile Democratic cases, including former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was a presidential candidate in 2016, uh, that didn't go forward after an investigation. And so you, you're not hearing so much a, a robust defense of Trump's actions as you are, you know, complaints that, that he's being treated differently than, than other, well, specifically Democratic politicians. Speaking with John Wagner, a politics reporter with The Washington Post on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, reflecting on what happened yesterday and what has happened with former U.S. President Donald Trump as he faces federal charges related to uh, the alleged mishandling of some classified documents from the White House. Now, it could be a year or even more before a trial is held in this particular case, which could put us right smack dab in the middle of this election campaign. We've never seen this before. No, and the timing is really one big unknown at this point. Uh, the Justice Department, is, uh, which is prosecuting the case uh, under, under special counsel Jack Smith, I mean, they're really interested in doing this as quickly as possible, you know, the, realizing the optics are not great if it's right in the middle of a presidential campaign. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, has every incentive to, to delay this and draw it out as much as possible. You know, if it goes past the 2024 election and he's in office uh, and controls the Justice Department, they could just go ahead and drop the case. Uh, So it's really in his interest to to draw this out. Also, uh, Mr. Trump is likely to face charges in Georgia related to election interference. Do you expect that to happen sometime this year? Yeah, the, the signals uh, out of Georgia is that that's probably the charges are probably going to be uh, unveiled in in the summer, perhaps August, and so yeah, that'll be another you know issue of you know when do you schedule that trial, um, and Trump will, will you know vigorously contest that as well. We should make clear that he you know he pleaded not guilty yesterday, um, as he did in in Manhattan on the hush money case, but yeah, so there's that, and then there is also pending uh, you know another Justice Department investigation into. Uh, his actions surrounding the uh, January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. And we could see charges on that as well before, uh, you know, we get fully into election season next year. So, yeah, quite quite a bit of legal exposure that the former uh, president is having to face. Last one for you. How do you think the Democrats are handling this? Are they just allowing it to play out in the courts or should they be tackling a little more with a little more veracity? Well, certainly in, in the White House, President Biden has been uh, as silent as he can be about it. You know, he has to deal with Republican allegations that he you know, he ordered this up. He he insists that uh, you know the Justice Department and the Special Counsel are acting on their own, and he has nothing to do with it. So he is you know refusing to address it at all. Uh, a lot of other Democrats are trying to stay relatively silent and just let events play out. Um, but there's also just the sentiment that you know Trump is someone who has been a source of controversy in so many ways for so long that there's kind of some glee on the Democratic side that he he might finally be held accountable. We shall see. John, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. John Wagner is a politics reporter with The Washington Post. Did you you happen to hear the intro music to the president or the former president last night? I'm so indicted, and I just can't hide it. 
I'm about to go to jail, and I don't like it. I'm so indicted, and I just can't hide it. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I am so screwed. Yeah, he is, I think. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new study out from the Fraser Institute that shows some major cities in Ontario and and really across the country rank at the bottom when it comes to growth in median employment income. Let's take a deep dive into this with Ben Eisen, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and co-author of the report, Analysis of Changes in Median Employment Income in Canada's Census Metropolitan Areas. Ben, good morning. How are you? Very well. How are you today? I'm good. I always like starting with the basics on on stuff that is mathematical or complex in this regard. Not my forte, probably yours, as you've uh, you know taken a deep dive into these numbers. How was this analysis conducted? Uh, relatively straightforward. We looked at median employment income, which is, employment income is just money you make from jobs, so that doesn't include investment income. It doesn't include transfers from the government and things like that. Uh, money you make from a job or part-time work, things of that nature. And median is the person in the middle. So there's just as many people making more and less as that person. And for each of the major uh, metropolitan areas, basically cities uh, across Canada, 41 of the largest areas, we compared the rate of growth from 2008 to 2019, with 2019 being the end point uh, because things got shaken up so badly by the COVID pandemic and recession, and the de- and the uh, dust is still settling on that. So that's what we did in the report. We compared median income in 2008 to 2019 and said which cities are growing in terms of uh, income uh, faster and which ones are growing slower. All right. So I have the stats in front of me. Our listeners don't. So explain what you found. Well, we we found interesting stuff all across the country, but for the sake of Ontario, uh, we found that Ontario's performance was generally pretty dismal. Uh, The bottom of the rankings were largely populated by Ontario cities and often large cities, which isn't surprising given that uh, Ontario is so populous and has so many large cities uh, in it compared to other other provinces. Uh, And that's a relatively simple artifact of the fact that the recession in 2008, 2009, 2010 was so steep in Ontario, which a lot of people know. Uh, but then the recovery was incredibly tepid. After such a steep recession like that, you like to see a strong bounce back. That's what you typically see as a strong bounce back. That didn't happen in Ontario. There was a steep recession and a very tepid recovery. Uh, and so that what you get is the result uh, of 11 years of very low median income growth, very low productivity growth. And in the end, something resembling a lost decade uh, for the Ontario economy. And certainly, as we show in this report, for median uh, for employment income across the province. Yeah, at the bottom of the list is uh, Oshawa, minus 5.1 percent. Uh, Calgary's not too far behind it, 3.6. But then you have Toronto, London, um, Ottawa, Gatineau region, Windsor, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo, which is, uh, you know, above the minus and, and certainly in the black in this regard. But the question is, what is happening in Ontario? Well, I suppose that the, uh, the the straightforward answer is is a very weak recovery from a very steep recession, um, and the manufacturing sector being decimated as it was in southwestern Ontario uh, in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and nothing adequately replacing it uh, to the point of helping the economy drive growth in the way that you'd like to see uh, a large rebound. So there's no one single factor. There's a lot of policy factors. There was a long period there 
uh, during which electricity prices were very high, and that contributed to challenges uh, re- rebooting the employment, the manufacturing sector, and some other areas uh, of the economy. So there's no one cause, uh, but certainly if we're looking at it and trying to understand uh, that we, we need to we, we need to grasp is that the province just never really bounced back very strongly all through this period um, from from the 2008 to 2009 recession. And then all the while, while employment earnings remained roughly flat, uh, there was all these other cost of living drivers. Taxes went up in a number of areas. The price of housing, obviously, uh, has reached almost crisis proportions and perhaps you could say crisis proportions in lots of parts uh, of the province. And so this has been a really difficult time for a lot of Ontario families. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Ben Eisen, is a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, and he's compiled a study that shows uh, major cities in this province rank at the bottom in the country when it comes to growth in median employment income. Uh, Hamilton is at 1.4 percent on the plus side, um, which uh, I guess begs the question. And there are other Ontario cities that are on the plus side as well. St. Catharines, Niagara at 3.7 percent. Um, are, are these cities doing or have done a, a good job post-recession? Uh, that would be an overstatement, I, I, I think. It's not as bad as the places that have experienced negative growth. But when you're talking about uh, a place like Hamilton having a, a couple of percentage points over the course of such a long time, it's essentially zero growth. Uh, when we look at the annualized amount for Hamilton, it's 0.1 percent. Uh, annual growth in median employment income. That that's basically nothing. Uh, so it's better than a, a negative number, uh, but they should be viewed in the same context. Zero zero isn't uh, such a crucial dividing line uh, between the cities that have performed well and and, and performed poorly. Uh, a province with very slight positive, sorry, a, a city with very slight positive growth or very slight negative growth or a flat growth. It's a similar story uh, of weak overall median employment growth, and I think that's the story for Ontario cities. Last one for you. The, the Canadian average when it comes to median employment income growth is 5.4%. Is that a healthy number? How does that compare to other countries? Do we know? We don't do an international comparison, but I think that calling it, it certainly um, healthy would be would, would not, uh, to me, be a big characterization. Of course, that's largely driven by Ontario. Ontario is uh, 40% of the na- national economy, 40% of the national population. So what happens in Ontario is going to have a huge effect uh, on national numbers. But no, uh, when you anal- a- annualize the Canadian figure, uh, you get about 0.5% uh, change in median employment income per year. Um, that's better than just Ontario alone, but it's not impressive. It's nothing uh, to write home about, uh, and it's not not very good by historical standards. Uh, we don't do an international comparison, but it, it's not an encouraging number. Mm-hmm. Ontario as a whole, the cities that we looked at in Ontario mostly uh, did not do well on this indicator. The province as a whole did not do well on this indicator. And that feeds into the fact that Canada on a whole has just not seen great employment growth over the employment, employment income growth over the ta- t- uh, past uh, decade prior to the recession, uh, prior to the pandemic. Excuse me. There's really no ways to slice it. Unfortunately, our study is a bad news story. It appears we have to uh, roll up our sleeves, pick up our socks and uh, get back to work. That is for sure. Ben, I really appreciate you uh, explaining the numbers to us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a super skinny house in Toronto that has recently sold for well over the asking price. This home on Saunders Avenue is just 10 feet wide. Picture yourself in your home. You might be in your kitchen right now or in your bathroom, in your family room, listening to the show. 10 feet wide. That's not that's not wide at all. And it sits on an 11 foot wide lot in Toronto's Parkdale neighborhood. 
It was listed on May 24th for $1,149,000, and just four days later, it sold for $1.45 million, $300,000 over asking. Rob Golfie is a sales representative with Remax's Scartman Realty, the Golfie team, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thank, thank you for having me on. This is uh, wild. It, number one, you know, the super skinny home itself is is very niche, but selling 300000 over asking with a property like this in just four days, like, holy cow, what do you think? It's it's just the way the market is. I mean, even in our market in uh, in Hamilton, I mean, the, um, we're getting 44% of the homes just in April sold over asking, and in May it was 47%. We, we, we have a crisis. We have a shortage of homes. People are just wanting a home. And if they can find something, they're, they're going to buy it. And, and tiny homes are becoming trendy now. So this uh, used to be a very niche market with, you know, only a certain segment of the buying public would even look at a super skinny house like this. Are more and more people, as you mentioned, more interested in these tiny skinny homes because they just want to get in? Yeah, it, well, before it was just Airbnbs. People would like to, you know, um, you know, rent them out for, uh, you know, just maybe a weekend and just experiencing a tiny home. But uh, a lot of people are, you know, they're trying to find an affordable uh, home, and tiny homes seem to be the way to go. And look at uh, Elon Musk. I mean, he's building uh, um, homes, uh, the boxables, I guess they're calling it, and and it's going to be a big trend. That's going to happen in Canada, but I think we're, you know, a little slow on getting off the ground on that. I mean, builders, uh, they can build subdivisions and hopefully municipalities will allow them uh, building small homes so people can afford them. But as time goes on, they're just going to get more expensive just because we, we have a shortage of homes. We've got, we've got refugees are occupying big hotels in Niagara Falls. Uh, waiting to find a, a place where they're going to go, and and we're still bringing immigration into Canada. I mean, we just did about five six hundred thousand in the past year. We got another million coming in the next couple of years, and um, and we're not keeping up to the pace, and and it's just going to keep driving prices up. Look at Toronto; like this one got three hundred thousand over asking, and and it's it's not that wide of a house. It's it, it's uh, and you know it's just the way the market is going to keep going if we don't start building more homes. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax's Scartman Realty, the Golfie team. You can find out more on his website, robgolfie.com. And you can also check out Rob, the star of the Golfie Real Estate Show, Saturdays at 9 a.m. right here on 900 CHML. Now, there's an added bonus to this house. It has a basement apartment. So this is not only a place you can live in, but also collect some extra income as well. That must have been very appealing. And, that, and that's probably why they uh, they did well on their price because they had uh, they, it could help pay for uh, the mortgage on on this place. Uh, so and especially you know the location where it was, somebody definitely wanted to live in that location. And uh, when this house came up for sale, they jumped on it and they didn't want to miss out on it. So in in this day and age with the housing supply. With homes that are selling that have those, you know, as back in the day, we used to call them granny flats or, you know, additional apartments or basement apartments. Are they selling for a lot more because, you know, people can see them as an investment, uh, you know, property as well? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, A lot of uh, homes now I'm seeing uh, people are converting them into like into uh, basement apartments. and, And you're seeing a lot of rentals right now 
they're only renting the main floor or the basement, two separate units. And it's funny. And now it's going to be more difficult for a family to rent a house that they actually get to occupy the, the whole house, like the, like the upstairs and the basement. Now they're just, you know, it's get, houses are getting split up and, and the opportunities are out there for the, the people that own homes to uh, make money on the rental. And now it's, gonna, it's just going to keep driving prices up. So now when this seller wants to sell a house, um, it, uh, part of the uh, remarks that you put in there it says, "Hey, potential in-law uh, for rental income in the basement," and uh, and a lot of those are coming up on uh, on the MLS right now. Last one for you, and this is about Hamilton's rental market because we're seeing the latest rental report in May that shows the average price for a two-bedroom apartment a jump two percent from April to twenty-three hundred dollars which is just over 11% higher than last year at this time. And the price of a one-bedroom apartment in this city has risen 16% over the last year to nearly $1,900. Your, your thoughts on this price escalation and the impact that rental rates are having on the market? Yeah, it's going to continue going up um, to a certain degree. And, um, I mean, there's uh, apartment buildings going up uh, right now in Hamilton, Stony Creek, and different areas. Uh, developers are building them. And but the problem problem with those buildings that the new buildings going up, the rents are going to be skyrocket and and they're not going to be under the rent control uh, in those buildings because anything built after November of 2018, I think it is, there is no rent control. And that was the only way that the government could have uh, developers build apartment buildings, because uh, it, it was the last time they really built an abundance of apartment buildings was in the in the 70s. And, that, and then rent control came in and. Developers say, well, forget that. And we're not going to build any apartment buildings. We're not interested anymore. Yeah, it's going to be a dicey situation for those who need an apartment. That's for sure, because those prices have continually gone up. Rob, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Rick. Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team, online at robgolfie.com. And you can check out Rob and the gang on the Golfie Real Estate Show, Saturdays at 9 a.m. here on 900 CHML. There was another house in Toronto fairly recently, a few months ago, that sold, uh, and it was a skinny house. I think it was about 15 feet wide. It was listed for $3.4 million. And it sold a couple months later for almost $2.9 million. So they didn't get the price that they wanted. After it was relisted and, and reduced in terms of the price, but still $2.9 million for a house that's 15 feet wide. That is absolute bonkers. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new Beatles song is out and it features John Lennon's voice. Actually, the song's not out now. It's going to be out later on this year. But yeah, it features John Lennon's voice. It was created with the help of artificial intelligence. And Paul McCartney says... That AI technology is, quote, kind of scary, but exciting. Here's Paul McCartney telling the BBC that this song is going to be released this year and it's going to feature his old pal's voice. So when we came to make what will be the last Beatles record, it was a demo that John had um, that we worked on and we just finished it up and be released this year. We were able to take John's voice and get it pure through this AI so that then we could mix the record as you would normally do you know so it, it gives you it gives you some sort of uh, leeway so there's a good side to it and then a scary side it's pretty wild eh Vivek Tawari is with the Tawari Entertainment Group a producer behind the Jagged Little Pill musical and author of the comic The Fifth Beatle and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton Vivek good morning how are you 
Hey, good morning. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. How cool is this story? <laughs> Super cool. I, I'm definitely in the camp that finds it very exciting. Um, although I, I will even go on to add like exciting and, and really not that surprising. Um, you know, the Beatles have, have really always been pioneers in re- using creative recording techniques. Um, you know, those of us who are hardcore Beatles fans know that they really, uh, with George Martin, their producer, did all kinds of things in their early records from Rubber Soul to Revolver to Sgt. Peppers and beyond that no artist had ever done in the recording studio. And this is really, if you if you break it down, if you really listen to what Paul said, he's using AI as a tool. Um, it's He's using this brand new piece of technology in a way that is authentic. It's starting with the artist and he's using it as a, as a creative tool. It, it's really not that different from the from the, the studio work that they did in the 60s is the way I look at it. So apparently we're, we're uh, you know, trying to put all these pieces together and we're, we're guessing at this point, because that's all we can do is guess and speculate, that this song it was on a, a demo cassette tape that Lennon uh, obviously made and his widow Yoko yeah. Ono gave to Paul. And so now Sir Paul McCartney is saying, all right, we can, we can launch this with the new technology of today. Do you have any more insight on what this song could be? Well, I mean, you know, uh, th- this is all speculation because he he didn't uh, he didn't say it specifically in that interview that you just played. But there was a, uh, a a cassette that John Lennon had recorded of a handful of songs that he just like literally hit. My understanding is like hit record on a old school boombox, uh, labeled the cassette for Paul. Uh, Yoko Ono found it and delivered it to Paul. And two of those songs were were actually used, were uh, were Real Love and Free as a Bird, which the Beatles, as as again fans will know, um, went in and pulled out tracks and and cleaned it up and and used those to make two quote unquote new Beatles songs for the anthology project back in 1995, if my memory is correct. And this is a song from that uh, John Lennon um, uh, demo cassette. This one's called Now and Then. And um, and it literally, my understanding is that unlike uh, the the bits of Free as a Bird and Real Love, this one wasn't usable because they, they couldn't separate the vocals, too much background noise, electronic humming, etc. So again, this kind of goes back to the point I just said a few minutes earlier. Really, what's happened? The, the difference. Uh, to use a pun between now and then uh, <laughs> is that now we have this AI technology, another like studio tool that can isolate the tracks to make, to make it. But it's really just a, uh, just an expansion of, uh, of what they did, you know, in 1995 when they, when they created those two new Beatles songs. But that's what, that's what fans like myself believe this is. Uh, again, we don't know that for sure, but, but that's what, but that's what we believe that this is, uh, the cleaning up of the track now and then. How do you think Beatles fans are going to receive this? Are they going to be super excited because, hey, you know, this is John Lennon making a comeback from beyond? Um, I think we will be very excited about it. But but again, if I'm correct, and, and from what Paul described, this isn't really John from beyond. Uh, it's from the past. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, the scariness is the from beyond. You know, if you're going to use technologies to bring somebody back from the dead, and imagine what they might have said or what they might have done. Like that's where it gets into both ethical concerns and a little bit of creepiness and scariness. But but this is use of AI to take something that existed. This is this is a recording of John Lennon's voice from before he passed that was recorded poorly, or and and that they are using the the AI technology to fix up. 
my understanding is the artificial intelligence has been taught. Here's a vocal. Here's a guitar. Here's an electronic. Here's an electronic hum from an air conditioner. Go into there with your technology, your your intelligence, and your technology, and isolate those pieces. And the technology can do it in a way that uh, that humans couldn't. Although you might argue humans program the technology, so maybe it does come back yeah, to us anyway. It, it but my a- point is, this is not bringing John from beyond. This is bringing John from the past vocals that he actually laid down, which which I think any Beatles fan that stops to think about it, what's it, what, what's truly exciting about it is it's authentic. It, it is John. It is a John the way he wanted to present himself, the way he recorded himself for his bandmate. It's crazy exciting and incredible to think what technology can day, today can do. Vivek, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. Excited to talk about it. Vivek Tuari is with Tuari Entertainment Group, a producer behind the Jagged Little Pill musical and the author of the comic The Fifth Beetle. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.